Good morning, Bethel. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 48. Um, If you're visiting with us, we have been studying the book of Isaiah for a while now. We take breaks um, periodically, short breaks, um, you know, four or five weeks. And we're going to actually be doing that after chapter 48, which is where we are. Um, You can find it on page 608 in the Pew Bible. If you're using that, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the Pew Black Book um, underneath the pew in front of you. And you can find our text on page 608. So we are going to take a break from Isaiah um, after this week, because this is a good spot to stop. Another major section in the book of Isaiah we're completing here. Um, But we're going to look at chapter 48, the whole chapter, uh, this morning and see kind of the climax of this section that's run from chapter 40 to chapter 48. All right. If you wouldn't mind just joining me in standing in honor of God's word, I'll read through it together. I'll read through it and then we'll dive in. This may be unfamiliar territory for some of you. That's okay. It's a good kind of um, impetus to, to really pay attention when you, what in the world is going on here? Hopefully it'll make sense by the time we're done. Isaiah 48.1. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass. I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. You have heard, now see all this, and will you not declare it? From this time forth I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today you have never heard of them, lest you should say, Behold, I knew them. You have never heard, you have never known. From of old your ear has not been opened, for I knew that you would surely deal treacherously and that from before birth you were called a rebel. For my namesake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profane? My glory I will not give to another." Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him, and he will prosper in his way. Draw near to me. Hear this. From the beginning I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. 
Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. Go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it, send it out to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right, so I imagine that most people believe that being nominal in your religion is not a good thing. So when I say nominal, I mean like token commitment, Sunday only Christians, apathetic, indifferent. I mean, nominal Christianity by definition means you're a Christian in name only, right? Nominal can also mean far below the real value or cost, okay? So we talk about a nominal amount, a token amount, a minimal amount, like a trifle. So it's this kind of so-called faith that in our world turns so many away from Christ, right? I mean, there's either this kind of fishy incongruence between what those nominal Christians say and what they do, how they live the rest of the week, I mean, people can sniff out hypocrisy a mile away, right? Or the very minimalism that characterizes their faith, and I put that in quotes, means that nobody even notices. Their faith doesn't make much difference in their life, so it doesn't make much difference in the lives of others. In fact, others might not even know. But here's here's one of the ironies, and maybe you've seen this. Some of the people who are most sensitive to and and kind of critical of this hypocrisy and minimalism, the nominal Christianity, are themselves merely floating out at the margins and periphery of Christianity. It's almost like the nominalism of others becomes the excuse for theirs. It's really easy to be critical. And kind of cheap. (laughs) Meanwhile, you're blind to the fact that you're just part of the very same problem. So so what's the opposite of nominalism? The opposite of nominal would be faith that's authentic, right? And obvious. A faith in Jesus that makes a difference, and then it makes a difference. It makes a difference in us, and then it makes a difference through us. So that's actually where our text takes us this morning, from nominalism to authentically and wholeheartedly bearing the name of Christ. So let's go. That's where we're headed. Um, there's an outline in your bulletin. You can also see the points up here on the screen on the slides if you want to follow along that way. So first point in verses 1 to 8, hear this, O house of Jacob. I need to pause here. We're not going to pause after every phrase like this, but the Hebrew word translated here to listen or to, to hear, is found 11 times in this chapter, and it's, it's four times a command 
Sometimes it's translated listen, sometimes hear, okay? But the whole point is God wanted to get this people's attention. We need to see that. And I'm assuming that he wants to get our attention, your attention, my attention this morning as well. That's why he made a world that speaks of his glory. That's why he gave us his word. That's why he gave us his son, the word made flesh, because he wants to get our attention. He has things he wants to say to us. And so let's be attentive to what he has to say. He wants us to hear. That's the burden of this passage. And there are consequences for not paying attention to what God says. There certainly were consequences in Isaiah's day. Look down at verses 18 and 19. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Who doesn't want that? (laughs) Okay, so back to verse 1. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel and who came by the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city, Jerusalem, and stay themselves on the God of Israel, the Lord of hosts is his name. The key there is, but not in truth or right. In other words, not justly, not in righteousness. It's not the right thing for them to say this. It's a false confession. They are in name only believers. So how would you expect God to deal with people like this? They're hypocritical. They say one thing, they do another. We'll look at verse 3. The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. They suddenly, then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass. I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you. Lest you should say, my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. So here's the point of this. God had established a pattern with his people. If you know anything about the storyline of the Old Testament, he oftentimes announced to them ahead of time what he was going to do. And you'd think that this predictive announcement thing would mean that once it came to pass, they would be just like, wow, that's awesome, and give God the glory, right? Wow, it happened just like he said. What an awesome God. He's, he's the only sovereign Lord of history. No. Just let me give you one example, and I think this is one of the main examples in Isaiah's mind here. Remember the golden calf incident? Okay, once God brought his people out of Egypt. How many times had Yahweh announced beforehand what he was going to do to redeem Israel from Egypt? <laughs> he said it through Moses like a bunch of times. And then it happened over and over again. The plagues, the redemption, out of Egypt, everything. Just like he said, you know what? You're also going to be able to plunder the people. There's just all kinds of predictive stuff. And then it happened, just like he said. And so when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments from from Yahweh, he takes a little too long in the minds of the people. And what do they do? Exodus 32. I want you to actually flip back here so you can see this. Because there's so many parallels with this passage. Exodus 32. Go backwards. You can find it on page 72. Thirty-two is the big number, big bold number, versus the little numbers. Exodus 32, 1. 
When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and set Aaron was the priest and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. They obviously have been in Egypt a little too long. As for this Moses, the man, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, it's like God's not even in the picture. We don't know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, okay, give me your gold. You know, the gold that God said that you would get from the Egyptians when you leave. That's kind of in, in between the lines, right? So Aaron said to them, give me your gold. They gave him his gold, their gold. He received the gold and he fashions this golden calf. And they said, look at this. They said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Verse 5, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the golden calf. No, that's not what it says. A feast to the Lord. See, they're still, oh yeah, we worship Yahweh. Name only. They think they can put this stuff together. Look at verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Does that ring a bell? 48.4. Because I know that you're obstinate, your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead brass. So they clearly attributed, they they attributed the clear work of God to some made-up God. And fast forward the tape, now they're in Babylon, in exile, under the thumb of the Babylonian king, and Yahweh has predicted that he's going to raise up a deliverer. It's kind of shocking to them. A pagan king named Cyrus. You can go read about him in history. This is exactly what he did. And he returned them to their homeland. And you know what? They don't like this plan. This isn't the way that this should be done. We've got a better idea. They're offended because it's not the plan that they had in mind. So look at verse 6. Go back to Isaiah 48, and we'll keep going. Look at verse 6. He told them in advance that Cyrus is going to be raised up and he's going to return them home. Verse 6, You've heard, now see all this, and will you not declare it? Actually, the New Living Translation makes this really clear. You have heard, now look at all the evidence. Will you not admit that what I say is true? You're supposed to be my witnesses. This is God to his people. You're supposed to get up on a high place and say, our God reigns. God's people are supposed to be heralds of of the good news that God has. We've got the best news in the world, and instead they're stubbornly silent because God's not doing things according to their plan. Does that sound familiar? We get silent because God's not doing things according to our plan. Oh, sure, we're still Christians, but is it in name only? Nothing will kill your willingness to shine with God's light to those around you, like dismay over God's ways of working. Slowly, subtly, we can get critical, not just of, you know, these pathetic excuses for Christians all around us, but actually, we're actually cynical or critical of God. It's called sclerosis of the soul. It means you're becoming more like 
that calf, the golden one, with the stiff neck. So for the Israelites in the desert, God didn't show up and explain things on their timeline, do things in the way that they wanted. So they were willing to make some idols, run elsewhere to other gods, you know, self-medicate, do it themselves, run to other functional saviors. And that golden calf had a pretty stiff neck and a pretty hard forehead. That's what idolatry does to us. We become like what we worship. Psalm 115.8, those who make idols become like them, so do all who trust in them. And, you know, don't think that we're off the hook because we don't actually bow down to metal and, and wood. Whatever is the substitute for God that, that is the centering, you know, value and treasure of our life, that's, that's what we're worshiping. That's our idol. So what's God going to do to these stiff-necked, idolatrous rebels in Babylon, you know, exiles in Babylon? Grind them to powder like Moses did to the golden calf? No. Instead, he's going to graciously speak to them again and do so in such a dramatic way that they simply won't be able to explain it any other way or take credit for it themselves. Look at the second half of verse 6. From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that you've not known. They're created now, not long ago. Before today, you've never heard of them, lest you should say, behold, I knew them. You have never heard. You have never known. From of old, your ear has not been opened, for I knew that you would surely deal treacherously and that from birth, your name has been rebel. (laughs) That's your name. That's us naturally. So, I mean, have you ever had somebody take credit for something that you did? Don't you love that? Like at work, especially if it's an environment where, oh, this is really going to look bad if I try to stick up for myself here. Or maybe it's in your home. Or, or this is how it goes sometimes, you know. When they say, we did thus and such. We? That would be me. And you're just kind of like piggybacking, taking some credit here. Well, that's us with God. Listen to Ray Ortland. I love this. He intends to keep on surprising us because we can't be trusted with full disclosure of his plans. We'd end up saying, oh, sure, I saw it coming. Isn't that the way we are? We don't like uncertainty. We don't like feeling helpless. If only we could see into the future. But would that really be good for us? What if God did tell us everything in advance? What would we do with it? We wouldn't lean on him moment by moment. We'd soon think we could take control. And Isaiah calls that bent in our hearts rebellion. But... He keeps leading us along even when our thoughts treat him more like a problem than a joy. So do you see how he's treating these nominal people? He's giving them another chance for like the umpteenth time. So if you see some stubborn nominalism in you this morning, make sure you also see the stubborn perseverance of God in these verses this morning. As good old Richard Sibbs said, there's more grace in Christ than sin in us. So we've seen a bit of what Yahweh is going to do in response to these people. The next question is why? Why is he going to do it? And that's what's answered in verses 9 to 11. Only for the sake of his name. 
<clears throat> so again, remember, these are hypocrites. They're stubborn in their resistance of Yahweh's wisdom and ways. They're idolaters. They're treacherous, to use the language of the text there. They're rebellious, treacherous. They're, they're spring-loaded to deflect credit away from God onto some other so-called God or to just take it for themselves. Why in the world is Yahweh still putting up with these people? Why hasn't he destroyed them? Why has he, why has he had mercy? Well, look at verses 9 to 11. This is awesome. I've known these three verses for quite a while, and I didn't realize how awesome these verses were until, like, this morning, okay? Um, this week and this morning especially. For my namesake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you. If you have the ESV, do you see the little... Number one, look down. What's it say down there? I have chosen you. Well, that's the right one. I don't know why. This verb everywhere in Isaiah is, is translated as chosen, but it seems kind of weird. I have tried you. That's what, that's what happens in a furnace, right? Oh, but we need to see what's going on here. I chose you in the furnace of affliction. Here's what's going on. Back in Isaiah 1, when the dire spiritual condition of Israel is being laid out, 122, you can look it up later, says your silver has become dross. You know what the dross is? It's the dregs, right? It's, <laughs> I looked this up. This is a great way to say it. The scum that's formed on the surface of molten metal. And it's totally worthless. It's rubbish, Okay. So he could have just discarded them. They were nothing but dross. Listen to Alec Motier, another commentary, or commentator. With silver, the refining process goes on until all dross is removed. But since with Israel the silver has become dross, the end would be total destruction. In the crucible, the Lord renewed his choice. <gasps> Isn't that awesome? So here's the deal, with, with like nominal, you know, yawning at the God of the universe sort of indifference, if he just tried us to the end, there'd just be nothing left. But he can, when God chooses you, he can turn scum into pure silver. Why does he do it? For my own sake, verse 11, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? I, my glory I will not give to another. So God's people, in name only, they're stubborn, they're glory grabbing, they're idolatrous rebels, they're all dross and scum. <laughs> so are we um, without God's grace. So what does God do? He predicts new things. He chooses them again. Why in the world? Well, the whole point is that it's because of absolutely nothing in them. <laughs> they deserve only judgment to be rejected and cast off forever, but Yahweh does not act in accordance to what is in them or in us, but according to what is in him. He acts for his own name's sake. And you know what? That's not egotistical on God's part. That's actually our only hope. You see, if it was based on what we deserve, we're all in trouble. Do you see? It can't be generated like, oh, he looks around and goes, oh, that person's worthy. I will respond for his sake. 
No, there'd be no response because none of us deserve it. It's, for my sake, it rises up internally, this free mercy. That's our only hope. (laughs) See, our love is so conditional. It's so up and down with how people, what have you done for me lately? God's love is better than unconditional. It's contra-conditional. That's a David Palson word, if it's a word. If you put a dash in there. It's against all we deserve. It's against all odds. God always treats us better than we deserve. It's the only way we get grace and have a hope and a future. And as a result, who gets the glory for that? He does, because he did it all. He's the one that gets the glory. Did you think... I hadn't really even stopped to think of this, even though these words are familiar. Who's the another in verse 11? You see it there? For my own sake, my own sake, I do it. How should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. In the context of Isaiah, who's that another? Well, there's two possibilities. Either Israel, the people, these nominal rebellious people that say, oh, I knew it, verse 7. I'll take the credit for that. You're not, you know, not impressing us. Or the gods and the nations that they were bowing down to, these idols. And neither of those options is okay with with God. That Israel would get the glory or those idols, those false gods would get the glory because both of those would be a lie. Isaiah 48, 9 to 11 is like the Old Testament version of 1 Corinthians 1. Listen to these verses. For consider your calling, brothers, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So we sung it earlier, to God be the glory. Let me quote Ray Ortland again here. If you are in Christ, (laughs) this is the sweet side of this these verses. If you are in Christ, whatever God is doing in your life right now is not an experiment that he might abandon if he gets fed up with you. You need to know that God would have to stop being God before he'd quit on you. And why is God devoted to you? It's not because you risk looking like a failure. Not because of you. You already do. You and I, we already look like failures. It's because God will never let his purpose fail. The defeat of grace to sinners would be the defeat of God. So last week we saw this so clearly in Isaiah 46 and 47 that God's salvation is always by grace. The very sinfulness of people is the proof of the need for the gospel. Of course there's hypocrites in the church. (laughs) That's why we need saved doesn't undermine the message of Christianity. It displays its necessity. And oh, how wonderful it is that God does all that he does for his name's sake. So do you see this God who absolutely, because of nothing in you, if he has had mercy on you, 
and you've seen how prone you are to just treat him like a trifle, you know, nominal commitment, and he keeps loving you. It's all for the sake of his name. So let the glory of who he is torch the ice of nominalism in your soul this morning. Let it open up your ears all the more to be attentive to what he says. And that's the focus of the next set of verses here in 12 to 19. He wants us to listen and trust him as he works in ways that don't always make sense to us or that sometimes cut against the grain of our souls. So look at verse, verses 12 to 19. Three times you hear this, you see this hear or listen command. It's the same word in Hebrew. Um, so we know that that's front and center as far as the purpose of these verses. So listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel whom I called. I am he. I'm the first and I'm the last. My right hand laid the foundation of the earth. My right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him, Cyrus. Okay? It's his tool in the moment to bring circumstantial deliverance for his people out of Babylon. Cyrus is the Median uh, king who, Persian king that... uh, crushed Babylon, and then set them free to send them home, like in Ezra and Nehemiah, if you're familiar with those books. So the Lord loves Cyrus. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon, and his arms shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I brought him, and he will prosper in his way. This isn't just mere political movements. This is me accomplishing my purpose. And then the text takes this cryptic turn. Look at verse 16. Draw near to me. Hear this. From the beginning I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me. Who's talking? He has sent me and his spirit. Who is this? Now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Well, it's going to become clear in chapter 49 that it's the servant of the Lord who's speaking. The servant who will end up suffering for the spiritual redemption of God's people. So they're going to be circumstantially brought out by Cyrus, but Cyrus can't change their hearts. So big picture for verses 12 to 16 is summarized well by Alec Motier again. As with the Cyrus plan for release, there is the servant plan for spiritual redemption. So they're going to be brought out from underneath the thumb of of Babylon by Cyrus and returned to Jerusalem but their hearts are still cold. How's that going to change? How are they going to have internal freedom, redemption at the heart level by means of the servant? It was foretold and it will be accomplished, Motir says. And so what's needed is open ears and open hearts to what God is doing. No more minimalism, no more rejecting God's ways and means, even when they seem counterintuitive. Look at verse 17. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I'm the Lord your God who teaches you to profit. I want to benefit you. I want to bless you. I want to give to you. I want to lead you in the good way, the way you should go. Ah, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. I would have fulfilled all these covenant blessings that I promised. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. So Cyrus liberates from Babylonian oppression, but that only changed their address. Just like with the first exodus out of Egypt. Change of address, not enough. They grumbled in the wilderness, right? They need heart-level redemption. 
I, I th- again, I think this was Tim Keller that said this, you can take the slavery out of, I'm sorry, you can take the people out of slavery, but you can't take the slavery out of the people. You can take the people out of slavery, out of that circumstance, but their hearts are still enslaved. The only person that can set you free at that deep level is God. Only God saves. Only he can redeem at that level. Yahweh, our Redeemer, verse 17, the Holy One of Israel. He leads us in the way we should go. He makes the way. He is the way. Jesus is the way for this to happen. He teaches us to profit. Idols, false gods can't profit us. So when we go our own way, when we resist him, we kind of close our ears to God, we forfeit his blessings of peace and righteousness and fruitfulness. That's what happens when we respond dismissively to the word of God rather than hearing it. So in the end, false gods of money and sex and ambition, pleasure, comfort, whatever, they cannot save. Only God saves. So what happens when we all, like sheep, have gone astray? We've turned everyone to his own way. Do we forfeit his blessings forever? Well, let's see if we can put all of verses 1 to 19 together. Our God devised a plan that was so unexpected that none of us would have predicted it. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own, a, uh, his own way. And for his name's sake, he has laid on him, his servant, his son, we know now, the Lord Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So do you see how the suffering servant who speaks in verse 16, whose suffering is then predicted in chapter 53, is how, you got to listen here, how God carries out verses 9 through 11. He's going to do it all for his name's sake. The only way that he can actually do it is by means of his servant. Here's what I mean by that. Isaiah 48, 9 to 11. For my own sake, how can I let my glory, how can I give it to another? How can I let my name be profaned? That has a double edge. God is both just and he's merciful. If he was merely just and wrathful, it kind of calls his love and mercy into question, doesn't it? If he's merely merciful, it kind of undermines, calls into question his justice. He's just and he's got to punish sin. How can the Holy One of Israel pardon guilty rebels? Like King David, murderer, adulterer, passive father, etc., etc. How can God be just and forgive him? On what basis? Put Put your name in there. How can you or I, I mean, our list is long. How can God pardon us? How does that not call his justice into question? How does that not profane his name? Or flip it over, how can the God who's merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, discard all the human dross on the planet? How can he condemn us all to hell? Doesn't that call his love and mercy into question? Wouldn't that profane his name? (laughs) Only the cross enables God to keep his name from being profaned. You see? Because who he is, is just and merciful. Only the cross enables God to keep his name from being profaned. The cross is the only way he upholds the glory of his name. That's how he is both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus because 
He spent that wrath and condemnation on Jesus in our place rather than on us. That's the glory of our God. And this is the God we tune out. The God that went to these lengths to save us. So we've read in verses 18 and 19 of the effects of not paying attention. It's kind of like spiritual ADHD. We've also felt the consequences, haven't you? Haven't you felt the We read about them, but haven't you felt the consequences of, of not paying attention to the Lord and to his word? What ends up happening? Loss, pain, loss of peace, blessing, joy, hope, stability, fruitfulness. We get anxiety and fear and, you know, guilt and shame and all of that, which is really kind of strange because why do we do nominalism? Why, do, why is that so attractive? Because we think it's so much loss to be all in. I mean, it's, if I really follow Jesus, well, well, maybe, just maybe, when we're not listening to God, we're actually listening to the lies of his archenemy, the same one who nudged the whole human race into spiritual exile when he convinced Adam and Eve to listen to him with his forked tongue instead of God. You know, the celestial killjoy. So we need to listen carefully and listen carefully to the conclusion of this chapter. Look at the last point in verses 20 to 21. Go out from Babylon. See, they didn't like the plan. They didn't like the Cyrus plan, so they're kind of like ho-hum about it, resisting it. No, 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 trust me. Go out from Babylon. Flee from Chaldea. Declare this with a shout of joy. I'm doing this for your good. Proclaim it. Don't be silent. Send it out to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. He's done it again. Second Exodus. Woohoo! We're free. And you know what? He didn't let them thirst in the wilderness. He made water flow from a rock. He split the rock and it gushed out. That's one option. Or, there is no peace, says the Lord for the wicked. So, all of us, we just need to be honest with ourselves, look in and say, am I trying to live with one foot in the kingdom of, the, of this world and one foot in the kingdom of Christ? You know, just trying to have my cake and eat it too, like the nominal Christian thing. Are you a Christian in name only? Does the world really have your true heart? Well, the God who saves is speaking to you today. And he's got a lot of good news for stupid, nominal people like us. He wants us to hear, to listen, to pay attention. He's saying, go out from Babylon. Like, it's a condemned house. It's not going to satisfy you. It's not going to save you. It's not the source of safety. I'm your safety. I'm your security. I'm your satisfaction. So in Cyrus's day, the response was weak. Kind of like hearing, um, you, you remember that parable in Luke 14 where there's a great man who prepares a great banquet and he invites many and instead of, you know, excited yeses with exclamations points in, in Evite, you know, online or whatever, he gets these lame excuses. 
Uh, you know, I just bought some oxen. I need to go check them out. I, you know, I've got this new business venture. I, you know, I, I just... Are you kidding me? This is the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. His people never died of thirst in the wilderness. He watered them miraculously. Jesus promised, I'm the bread of life. Man, I come down from heaven. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never, ever hunger. Whoever believes in me will never, ever thirst. He's going to take care of you. Don't let anything hold you back. Instead, so here's how I'm going to conclude here. Just applicationally, think, think about it this way. Go out all in together. Go out all in together. So let's leave nominal Christianity in the dust. Anybody with me? Let's go out following Jesus. He's the one that teaches us to profit. Let's be all in. Put all your chips on the Jesus square. Bet the farm. No compartmentalization. Well, I better hedge my bets, you know, in case he doesn't come through for me. No. Listen to how, listen, hear this. Listen to how this sounds. This is Jesus speaking to you, to me. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Go out all in. For whoever would save his life, Try to save your life in this life, you'll lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Don't love this world. Go out all in together. Remember the Apostle Paul talking about his own life in Philippians 3? Talk about go out all in. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss, but don't feel bad for me because it's the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, that's my motive in all this. Gain. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Go out all in together, the together part. This is not easy to walk this pilgrim path to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. Sometimes you're going to feel like an alien in a strange land. Well, that's why we need each other. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God and just kind of drift into nominalism, just going through the motions. But encourage, exhort one another every day, as long as it's still called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So two words, community groups. That's why, this is why we do them. That's what they're for. And if you're not in one, you can visit one today. The sheet's in your bulletin. And all of that is so that we can on this pilgrim path, even though we, it's hard sometimes, we don't always know where he's leading us, we can lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and we can run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus. We can do it together as pilgrims running this race, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross for us, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So the path that he leads us on will not be easy, but he won't abandon us. 
Whoever believes in me will never ever hunger. Whoever comes to me will never ever thirst. He will not leave us or forsake us. So this, is, this text is like a fork in the road. Well, you would meet it like that, okay? I'm meeting it like this. Fork in the road this morning. We will either stiff-arm Jesus or stiff-arm nominalism. Stiff-arm Jesus and your life will experience the unavoidable truth of verse 22. There is no peace for the wicked. That's how you define wickedness, is just saying, oh, your grace, your promises... Stiff-arm nominalism, stiff-arm unbelief, and the Prince of Peace, who won for you the gospel of peace, will guard your heart and your mind with his perfect peace. All the way home. So we're going to close with a song that is a very appropriate prayer. Okay, So you can also view it as like an anthem of the anti-nominalism resistance movement. Who's with me? The acronym is ARM, like as in stiff arm. The anti-nominalism resistance movement, stiff arm, let's stiff arm nominalism to the glory of our great God. Listen to a couple of the words and then we're going to sing it. Precious cornerstone, sure foundation, you are faithful to the end. We are waiting on you, Jesus. We believe your all to us. Let the glory of your name be the passion of the church. Let the righteousness of God be a holy flame that burns. Let the saving love of Christ be the measure of our lives. We believe you are all to us. Only Son of God sent from heaven, hope and mercy at the cross. You are everything. You are the promise, Jesus. You are all to us. So we're going to sing this, sing it as a prayer, and then we'll close. And if any of you want to Talk with somebody, pray with somebody. Barb's going to come up here. I'll be up here. If you want to just, Lord, I need you to torch the, the minimalism, nominalism iceberg in my soul because I want to go out all in with Jesus and I need some help. Let's pray. Lord, you... You love to speak to us because you love to lead us in the path of life. Please give us ears to hear and help us to follow. Just like sheep, we hear his voice and we follow him. So, Spirit, please tune our ears so that as we hear the voice of our Savior and Shepherd, we will follow wholeheartedly wherever he leads us in his name. Amen.